as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi everybody, this is Tim Kittle, President of Speech Pathology Australia. I'm really, really excited today because I've got the pleasure of catching up with Professor Andrew Whitehouse. Uh, welcome to the Speak Up podcast, Andrew. G'day, Tim. What a pleasure. Can't wait. <laughs> I've been really looking forward to this because the last time I caught up with you was 2016 at the Perth conference. Yeah. We sat on the same table, but because the music was so loud, I didn't actually get to chat. So I'm making up for lost time here. But That's right. Let... You, you probably saw me dancing and that, that was probably enough to, uh, you know. No, no, no. You had you moves. On. You had moves. That's why I didn't go <laughs> onto the dance floor. <laughs> but for those people who haven't seen Andrew's move, let me introduce you. You've got three hats. So you are the Angela Wright Bennett Professor of Autism Research at the Telethon Kids Institute. You're also Professor of Autism Research at the University of Western Australia. To add to that, and to make us all feel very lazy, you're the Chief Research Officer at the Cooperative Research Centre for Living with Autism, known as the Autism CRC. You're an adjunct professor at both Curtin University and Edith Coward University. You've also been awarded Australia's most prestigious scientific award, which is the Eureka Prize, and that's in recognition of your work and passion as an autism researcher. And you're a leader in the field, both nationally and internationally. So my gosh, you're making me feel like I've not achieved anything at all, Andrew. Of all of those hats, I'm really interested in the Telethon Kids Institute. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Thanks, Tim. Actually, I think it makes me sound incredibly boring. So thank you um, for that. I'll, I'll tell my mum that somebody's impressed. Thank you. Um, um, look, um, I, I mean, I'm just I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. I, I get to, um, you know, I get to be idealistic and nerdy at the same time. And there aren't too many um, professions where you get to be both of them. So um, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be a, a full-time researcher. I did, um, I'm, I originally qualified um, as a speechy, but but I'm not too sure if anyone would own me as that anymore. Um, um, I was pretty lousy at it. And so I decided to go into research pretty quickly. And I, I've, I've been lucky enough to be a clinical researcher um, in the area of autism for a while. And at the Telephone Kids Institute, I'm just super lucky to lead um, a really new, quite new initiative. It's called Clinic Kids. It's a um, a, a clinical research centre where we're actually a community clinic, so we see lots and lots and lots of kids on the spectrum, uh, but research is embedded within that. So um, every family that goes through the doors is in um, invited to be enrolled in a randomised control trial of some description. So they would get uh, either, you know, typical community community therapy or gold standard therapy and then the uh, in you know the experimental arm would be uh, gold standard plus so a sort of a twist on what the gold standard therapy is and we're really really lucky that you know some of those families receive um you know, subsidised um, uh, uh, support through the research grants. Others are through NDIS, but it's just one of those things where we get to work with families, get our hands dirty, get to, to, to be involved in their lives, which is one of the things that we love, but also be super nerdy about it at the same time, lucky <laughs> us. 
It sounds really, really impressive, Andrew. Um, and, you know, it's that sort of action-based research that is so incredibly important. But what a huge amount of research you've got. So you've published over, my understanding is over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles. You've attracted something like $60 million in competitive research grants. And as a result of all of this work you're doing, you're an advisor to state and Commonwealth governments on policies related to children with autism spectrum conditions. And you've chaired the committee that generated Australia's first natural guideline, first national guideline for autism diagnoses. Whoa, I can't even say the stuff that you've done correctly. I suppose... It's a bit sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you had breakfast afterwards. <laughs> I suppose what I'm really interested in, Andrew, is, is how you found autism. Did you fall into autism or did autism yeah. find you? Oh, it's such a lovely question, and and um, I, I hope the listeners um, don't mind indulging me on this because it's it's lovely to reflect as to you know how you took the path, and 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 so much of our life is due to serendipity, and others, if we're lucky, I guess is due to choice, and this was a choice that I made. Um, I was around, um, you know, I've had very few lightning moments in my life and you know often I've just fallen into stuff and let's see how far it can go um, but this one was a lightning bolt moment where I was about 18 or so and um, you know I, I was sort of released from school and and um, enjoying a very hedonistic life as you do in the first few years out of school and it was um, uh, uh, you know it was mainly booze and the opposite sex that really had, um, um, kept me going there and 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 mum um, we had a family friend who had a child diagnosed with autism. And this is 99. Um, uh, and, you know, autism really was still quite an obscure condition back in 1999. We forget about that now, that the 90s really start was the first wave of where we started to understand autism. And mum said, you know, you're a good lad, um, or at least try and be a good lad and, and go over and um, provide a bit of um, respite for the family because I was studying speech at the time. And, um, and, and I started doing some therapy and it was, you know, I was in this hedonistic lifestyle, and so um, I, you, you, I, I, I sort of met a a, a, um, a brick wall of humanity. I think is the one of the ways to put it is that he was a family. Oh, it makes me a bit emotional just thinking about it. Who um, was who had this beautiful, much loved, adored child um, who was developing differently, um, and they didn't know what was going on. Um, he's, you know, quite severely um, on the spectrum, and um, and here I was uh, uh, waltzing in, and um, it was really and and to see them struggle to understand his developmental differences, to receive a diagnosis, to understand the best and most appropriate interventions. I mean, it really was a struggle back then. And there weren't too many occasions where I left that um, uh, 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 that house and went to the pub. I can tell you, it was I went home and started to reflect. And, and it's in retrospect, you start to understand that actually what we experienced, I experienced then is the essence of humanity is that um, you know, this just love between fa um, parents and child and that love doesn't change um, um, in volume in any way, shape or form, um, but they, they adapt in the way that they need to support their child and it's a different relationship and um, I realised pretty quickly that um, I, I don't want to say I got addicted to that humanity but I didn't want to leave it and I think that once you go through that experience and particularly if such a jarring experience given the lifestyle I was leading, um, I didn't want it to leave me and, and I made a choice there um, and really reinforced it through my clinical experiences through my PhD that why would I want to leave this? It's the best thing in the world. Yeah. 
How fascinating. And, you know, from the things that I've read and, you know, when I've heard you speak, that humanity kind of comes out quite a lot. And, and as, as you were saying, you know, there's been a huge journey just this century alone when it comes to autism spectrum disorder. Um, one of the very, very big markers was in 2013 when the DSM-5 came up. And I think that that's had a social shift as well. I don't know if you agree. You know, there's a move now towards autism being less of a disorder um, and perhaps more of a different neurodiverse way of thinking. Um, I'm just wondering what you think speech pathologists need to know and, and put in their mind when it comes to working with people from the autistic community. Right, it's such a good question. And, and it sort of, uh, it, 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 it's a question that encompasses both clinical science as well as policy and society. Um, and, and I think uh, hopefully my answer touches um, on all of them. Look, autism is a different way of thinking. There's no doubt about it. Uh, um, you know, the behaviours... Um, that we diagnose autism uh, um, using um, or through our observations is is um, a, the result of different ways of thinking. Um, I should state right at the front that I, I'm very big that diagnosis is a, an important part of the clinical pathway, but it's it's by no means even the most important part of the clinical pathway. You know, I, I would say right up front that understanding who a person is, that's their um, strengths, challenges, you know, support needs, that trumps understanding what a person is, their diagnosis any day of the week. And so that's a really important thing to state um, up front. But autism is a different way of thinking, generally speaking. Um, and, so you know, so many of humanity's advances have been driven by, you know, that different way of thinking that is associated with autism. The challenge, I think, comes when um, we look at those things that do often accompany autism, language um, disorder, uh, intellectual disability, motor movement challenges, you know, behaviours of concern, none of these things um, are advantages. None of these things are benefits in people's lives. And so I think one of the challenges that we have as clinicians and researchers um, is to understand how do we um, enforce, strengthen, bolster, buttress, promote those wonderful things that make somebody uh, um, not just on the spectrum, but who they are, um, while at the same time trying to remove the barriers or minimise the barriers from their life. Now, you know, uh, political-wise, it, it's, it's a real challenge at the moment to talk about um, um, some of the um, barriers that can often accompany autism, like intellectual disability and language disorders. I think that as clinicians and researchers and, and, and even policymakers, um, we need to view that through a prism of human rights. Um, it is absolutely a human right, as Speech Pathology Australia will absolutely endorse, that communication um, um, is free and easy and able to, be, and to occur. And at the moment... Um, um, for many people on the spectrum, that's that's not the case. And so I think what we need to do is to, to understand the essence of who that person is, and that might be part of the autistic behaviours and promote and strengthen that and use that to um, help people navigate um, and, and really, uh, um, you know, be joyful throughout their life while also minimising barriers. And I think we can talk about, but both can be true. And I think that's, the, that, that's really what we need to hold on to as clinicians, yeah. Yeah, wow. It's, it's such a balance, isn't it? You know, accepting oh, yeah. somebody for who they are, but also helping them reach what it is that they want to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, it comes from a point um, of respect. And, and, and I think, you know, speeches are just about the most important clinician in a child on the spectrum's life. It, it changes across the life course, for sure, but certainly remains an important clinician. You know, here's somebody who is desperate to understand who 
um, that person is, and and um, you know, communication challenges are a core part of a part of autism, and so. Um, the respect that speeches can show um, people on the spectrum and their families is to firstly understand who they are and, and to show families that you want you as much as the parents want to show the world how wonderful their child is. You know, just as much as the parents do, you want to show them how wonderful the child is. And part of that is actually minimising their barriers in life. And as I say, both can be true. And that's a really important thing. Wow. Yeah, thank you. That's incredible. So, Andrew, I'm wondering what's occupying you at the moment. What's sort of your latest research within here? Give us some goss. Oh, goss, I've got it. Okay, great, <laughs> thanks. Oh, um, this, is, this is a fabulous opportunity. Look, I, I think, you know, I, I come from a, um, a line of policy wonks in my family and, and I just remember just how boring my parents' work was when I was younger. Um, you know, parents who are news agencies and stuff, they were, the, they were the kings and queens, but, you know, my parents were policy wonks and somehow I've turned into one of them, um, um, you know, which is, you know, probably showing us how we, um, you know, what we do, uh, it rubs off on our kids. But uh, really the policy work is something I'm absolutely passionate about. Um, I'm absolutely passionate about raising the standards um, um, through which um, clinical practice is delivered. We developed the National Guideline for Autism Diagnosis. That came out of, um, I mean, I I was asked by the federal, um, by the health minister to do that, um, but it really came at the culmination of of frustration that everyone experiences, and that's, you know, people crossing state borders and having to get another diagnosis, people being diagnosed in the health system in the same state, and then the going to the education system, going to school and requiring another diagnosis. I mean, it just blows my mind that we came to accept that um, as the way to go. And, and you know, that's just normal. And it's just not normal. It's not, it's not ethical for families. It's not ethical for public spending. And so the National Guideline came out of a desire for consistency and equity and egalitarianism. And, and, um, um, uh, and then recently, you know, with David Trambath, uh, um, we, we re, um, recently completed the big um, report on what is evidence-based intervention for kids on the spectrum and, and certainly, and I look forward to actually presenting um, for Speech Pathology Australia on um, CPD a bit later um, on that because it's a really huge piece of work. I'm going to die five years earlier because of it, um, <laughs> um, but but it was fabulous um, and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, th- th- this kind of work is not easy. It's It's not glamorous, number one. Um, um, not, not that I have much glamour to show, but uh, number two, it's 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 not easy because you get so many slings and arrows thrown at you, and um, and uh, uh, all of which I understand. You know, these are people's livelihoods and clinical practice, but we all start from a base of we need to provide the families we seek to serve the greatest um, uh, the greatest service possible and the greatest clinical practice possible, and that that comes through guidelines. I think more excitingly, if I'm channeling my teenage self, um, um, you know, the, the clinic kids, the the, the, the the development of um, a clinical research centre um, where um, research is embedded in clinical practice is, has been a huge effort um, because it's, um, as everyone knows, it's tough to make ends meet um, as a private um, clinic um, and to embed research upon that is, is a bit of a challenge. But we're determined to do things differently. Um, you know, the clinical pathway for autism, which is, you know, wait and see, wait and see, wait and see, diagnosis at 3 to 10 and then intervention, that's been there since the 70s. And look, it's got a certain certain distance, but it hasn't got us anywhere near the reduction in disability that we want for people to thrive in 
um, society. So we're looking at things like um, we've developed interventions for kids, um, uh, uh, for infants who are showing early signs of autism. And I actually just crunched the numbers on, a, you know, the three-year follow-up of these kids, of these infants, 12 months showing early signs of autism. And um, we'll, um, I can certainly give a sneak peek at the CPD um, of those findings. There you go. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> then, and something wacky that we've just um, developed is an intervention, a speechy intervention for newborns. So babies who are just fresh out of the womb um, who have a family history of autism. Um, you know, what, what we're starting to understand with autism is that kids aren't born with autism. Kids are born with a different way of processing and then it's their interaction but of that different way of processing with the world that actually creates the behaviours that we go to diagnose with autism. So the sooner we can stop that cascade from birth, um, you know, a more, very important transition happens at about six weeks of age from sort of reflexive social interaction to purposeful social interaction. If we can capitalise there, then maybe we can actually start to um, reduce the disability associated with autism. So that's been trialled right now in Perth and in Melbourne. Um, these are newborns who have a family history of autism. And then I think probably finally, um, uh, I'm really passionate about um uh, what works for whom? You know, the standard randomised control trial design is uh, slightly defunct, I would say, when it comes to working with um, kids who are diverse um, because we group one, one whole lot of kids into one group and then a whole lot of kids into another group and then what we're measuring is their average intervention effect. But anyone who knows any kids is that there is no average child, you know. I don't want to <laughs> know what works for the average child. I want to know what works for this beautiful child in front of me who is the apple of their parent's eye. And so we're working with different models of um, clinical trials, things called adaptive clinical trials where you essentially, um, you know, you develop two groups, but then you actually re-randomise people um, halfway through the trial based on how they respond. So if you have an early responder to an intervention, you keep them going on the intervention because they're going bananas, great. Mm -hmm. But if they're slower responders, then you, you, you try to sh um, um, shake up the intervention to try and match the most appropriate intervention to them. So I'm really interested in that. And then, of course, communication. Look, if, if we're not communicating what we do, what, why do we do it? And so if, if we're not out there telling people why we do it and actually trying to provide ways that people can get this information get this training, I don't want to have it, I want everyone else to have it, then that's mission accomplished. So there's lots going on and um, you know what, I'm just so proud to originally be a speechy, um, if you'll still claim me, um, and, to, um, and to, to do this work in this area, it's such a privilege. Yeah, we're not entirely sure that we do claim you, Andrew. You've only been slightly <laughs> impressive. <laughs> but that was really cool. So it's not just goss, but a bit of a trailer for CPD coming up in yeah, the future as well. Come along. But I think, yeah, exactly. But I also think, you know, that comes back to what you were saying about, you know, you're embracing kids, but reducing that barrier, those barriers, like sort of as early as six yeah. weeks. I mean, that is good goss. I'm glad I asked you that question now. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. And you know what? Um, having just gone through that time, my life myself you know handing newborns back at the end of an hour oh what a joy <laughs> what a joy you know <laughs> that's got to be the it, best but it is great there is literally no reason why we need to wait until the point of diagnosis to start intervention why have we yeah. been doing that well because of clinical inertia because it's yeah. tough to change and yeah. if people who aren't i mean i'm in a privileged position to be a researcher so it's it's actually my ethical obligation to do few wacky things and we hope that this will um, become the norm you know yeah. in, in further years that this intervention does support kids to develop um, um, on a more neurotypical um, pathway and reducing their barriers 
Um, and then that is part of the species life from um, there on. There might be even newborn species, uh, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's exploding, as you were saying, that 1970s sensibility, challenging yeah. that and and really moving things forward, which must has got to be frustrating for a researcher when there are just older models that are being done. This sounds like it could really shake up some stuff, Andrew. Yeah, well, th- that's entirely part of Clinic Kids is that, one of the things that we know we need to do is not just try and do things differently, but prove um, to people that it can be done in an economic model. You know, it's yeah. hand to mouth out yeah. there in terms of private clinical land. And so if we can find a new clinical pathway for kids, and we, we see infants, you know, all the time, it is a struggle through NDIS, et cetera, et cetera. But if we can, you know, try and forge that path and then show other people the clinical model and, that, and they can make ends meet, and they know that this is more effective, then, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to do that demonstration first so others can copy. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. As you know, we've got autism awareness coming up yeah. on the horizon. Um, we've been talking a little bit about inclusivity um, now, but what do you think that Australia as a whole needs to know about autism and, and inclusivity? Look, how much, how much we have to gain from inclusivity we have just i mean we've got quite literally nothing to lose and everything to gain um we've seen it with every aspect um of disability but the hidden more hidden disabilities of developmental conditions i'll I'll do developmental language disorder included there autism even broader things like adhd we have so much to gain Um, um so many of the wonderful advances in humanity um have been created by people who think a little bit differently but you know what? It's not about those wonderful advances. It's about, you know, our true, true ability to change the world comes through incidental moments. Um, and, and yes, Isaac Newton, et cetera, et cetera, all the different ways of thinking have changed the world in a big way. But the way that we change um, the world in our own sphere is by our interactions with people around us. And that means both our own interactions, so in, including people um, in a formal way, through employment, um, through friendship circles, et cetera, et cetera. But how much I've gained throughout my life through the incidental moments um, with um, uh, people who've not only challenged me to think slightly differently, taken me outside my comfort zone all the time, but have, have uh, you know, given me warm friendships. And I'm talking about families. I'm talking about people on the spectrum themselves, of course, but their families. Um, and and uh, so by in, in um, by being more inclusive, all we have to gain is is to enrich our lives and and to change our own lives and change the world through those ways. And um, isn't it great that autism is as broad as humanity itself? And so we have all sorts of ways to include. And 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 so I think that would be the main thing. Is is really we've got everything to gain, nothing to lose. And it, and if it's not us. Um, clinicians, researchers, policymakers, then who? So make it our mission to do what we can in that in that sphere. Wow, that's really, really quite powerful. Thank you yeah. so much for that. It's been such a privilege chatting with you today. You've more than made up for uh, the break of five years when the music was too loud at Spa <laughs> Conference. <laughs> Have I made up for my dancing? Well, I don't know. That's up to other people to decide, maybe. Look, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Andrew. And we look forward to catching you at another conference sometime. And we look out for that CPD. I can't wait. Thanks for inviting me, Tim. And I look forward to the CPD. Take care. See ya. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. And bye for now.